0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Have you cleared your schedule tonight just so you're home to watch or listen to the first debate between presidential candidates Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump? You're not alone. Actually, more than 100 million people are expected to tune in. Now, NPR will have special coverage beginning at 9 tonight. But in case you want to watch the debate... NBC Connecticut is a good alternative. And joining us to talk about the debate at Hofstra University is NBC Connecticut's political reporter, Max Reese. He's traveling to Long Island later to cover tonight's debate. Max, welcome to where we live. Hey,
1: good morning, Lucy. It's good to be here.
0: So uh, this morning, the latest Q poll is out. Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are neck and neck. Surprised?
1: Uh, you, know, it's, it, you know, this is the horse race. Um, uh, this morning, uh, David Plough, who's a special advisor to Hillary's campaign, he he described these polls as uh, every day there's a new Bud Light and Cheetos poll that comes <laughs> out uh, for every candidate. Um, you know, the national poll is always interesting to look at because we all know, of course, it's the Electoral College that decides it. But at the very least, it shows us they're at 43 and 43, I think was the number, or 43 and 42. and. It shows us how unbelievably divided our country is right now. And it shows you that, you know, even though we know it's going to, the electoral college is going to decide it, th- the amount of division in this country is probably something we haven't seen in a very long time.
0: So you're going down to Hofstra uh, to uh, cover the Connecticut perspective. Uh, when we look at this debate, again, it may be the most watched debate. In history and presidential debate history, but does the, does it, watching the debate really matter in terms of who someone's going to vote for? Are the minds already made up? Uh, I think
1: I think to a lot of voters, especially this year with how with how uh, divisive the candidates have been, I think a lot of minds are made up. I think you'd be very hard pressed to to drive to the Olympia Diner in Newington uh, and 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 go down the line of people sitting at the counter and find somebody who goes, you know, what I'm not really sure who I'm voting for, just because these in so many ways they're polar opposite candidates, but. I also think that to the point of what the margin of error is on these polls, it, this gives you an idea. There are so many people who are so disgusted with the system, especially this year, um that they are saying well, well both are horrible. But then again, we've seen the libertarian and independent vote precipitate over the last um over the last 3 weeks or so. So I, so answer the question fully, I don't think there are that many undecided voters left. But look, debate moments could certainly make make the campaign with only about 40 days left.
0: When we look at Connecticut, independent voters, largest block of voters, who are they putting their support
1: behind? Right now in Connecticut, it looks like a lot of those independent voters are are voting for for Hillary Clinton. Simply because when you look at the number of registered Democrats and registered Republicans in this state – the ones who are in the middle have typically gone for a Democrat, and it's very difficult data-wise to look elsewhere. And, and also, in this, in this state, Donald Trump isn't as much of a known entity as Hillary Clinton is, even with her historically high unfavorables. The fact is voters in this state, they look at Hillary Clinton, they know who she is, and to many in this state, they see Donald Trump, and he, he still is the, the great unknown in many cases to them.
0: When you've been reporting in the last, uh, you know, 15 months uh, on this election, uh, you know, there's a lot of attention when Politico uh, just, I think, last week where H.W., uh, George H.W. Bush had said, you know, I'm I'm voting for Hillary. How many Republicans have you come across that uh, might be switching uh, who they're supporting?
1: A lot of Republicans, Lucy, won't say out loud they're voting for Hillary Clinton. They won't say that. But what you do get a lot of the time is I really dislike Donald Trump or Donald Trump doesn't speak for me. Um, an interview I did with with State Senator Len Fasano, this was months ago. This was in the days before the presidential primary and then the days after it. He described Donald Trump as a cathartic voice in the Republican Party. You know, that's not necessarily a glaring endorsement, but that's certainly not a negative thing to say about a presidential candidate. Well, then a couple of weeks later when I said to him, you're slowly, It's. it seems like you seem to slowly be embracing him. He kind of put his hands up and goes, well, well, not exactly. He said I didn't exactly endorse him. You know, and that, that's trying to be very careful about where the swing voters are in Connecticut. But also, he doesn't want to jeopardize state election prospects by just fully embracing Donald Trump full bore. So that, that's, it's, there's a lot of nuance with, with the way Republicans feel about Donald Trump right now.
0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In studio with me is Max Reese, political reporter for NBC Connecticut. He's traveling to Hofstra tonight to cover the first showdown between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Will you be watching the debate this evening and what will you be looking for? Join the conversation 860-275-7266. Again, we're talking about, you mentioned that not a lot of people, a lot of Republicans like Donald Trump. A lot of people don't like Hillary
1: Clinton. Hillary Clinton's unfavorables are incredible. I mean, they they really are. This is somebody where If she fell out of a boat and then hit water and then came out drenched and she told you she fell out of a boat, half people wouldn't believe her. They would say, no, 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 she did something else. She just came from a rainstorm. Um, And I think that that is the big – I mean it's obvious that that's the biggest problem with Hillary Clinton. The email issue, it won't go away. We know it's going to come up tonight. Um, There was classified material in those emails when she said many times there wasn't. Um, She's given double answers a lot of the times on different topics. You know, in so many ways, the the health issue with Hillary Clinton was not a mainstream issue until she had an actual in-public-health issue. And then because of her uh, evasiveness, Mm -hmm. it became an issue. In any other year, President Obama's health in 12 or Mm 8, okay, he had one bad day on the campaign trail, give him a day off we'd go forward, or or for that matter, Mitt Romney or John McCain. With Hillary Clinton, because she didn't say she had pneumonia or she had a health ailment, it became an issue. And and so many political observers would go, why wouldn't you just say, just I'm taking a day off the campaign? Why why wouldn't you say that? And I think that that's what a lot of vote, a lot of voters want to see tonight, a a somehow more sincere Hillary Clinton. But She's been running for president now for a year and a half, and I don't know if that's going to show up on the first debate of the presidential season.
0: A lot of analysis leading up to tonight. uh, Many um, analysts and and, uh, political commentators have said, you know, low expectations for Donald Trump. So he has only one direction to go in terms of, you know, what his perspective will be and how people will view his performance tonight.
1: I think that Donald Trump has an incredible opportunity tonight. He's so vague on so many of his policy details. What if he comes out tonight with a full-blown plan when it comes to foreign policy, when it comes to barring refugees, when it comes to actually building the wall? I mean, what what if he comes out with this data crunch of, of what it would cost federal taxpayers uh, you know, to, to build this wall? Um, but then again, if we get the Donald Trump that we've seen at rallies where it's laissez-faire, it's willy-nilly, he says whatever is clearly coming to his mind, what we don't know the answer to is how will that uh, be received by a national audience? In a hall of 5,000 people, they eat it up. They love it. But if he starts saying, oh, we're, you know, we're going to build the wall and it's going to be the best wall you've ever seen, I don't know how that would be received, those, those sweeping generalities on a national level.
0: It'd be something if he actually came forward with a, a direct and, and a detailed plan on, on some policy issue.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, to Hillary Clinton's credit, she's a policy wonk and she's a political wonk. And we've known that you say what you will about her plans. If you don't like them, that's all well and good. You you have every right to. But she's put a lot more out there. And then with Trump, he'll say things like, well, I have a secret plan to defeat ISIS. Um, I think a lot of Americans would like to know what his plan is and how it differs with the Obama foreign policy. And for that matter, the Hillary Clinton, John Kerry foreign policy.
0: Hillary Clinton is a seasoned politician, but in terms of of how people um, look at her as a woman, you know, how will she have to present herself tonight?
1: There was interesting, there was a lot of symbolism at the DNC, you know, wearing white, uh, this kind of breaking free, breaking the glass ceiling at the Democratic National Convention. And I think that what we're going to be looking for tonight are some of those triggers we've seen on social media regarding the way a prominent female is spoken to and the way a prominent female has to deal with some things that, frankly, men just haven't had to deal with in the campaign. A, a good, for instance, with the presidential race, nobody's talked about the way Donald Trump might get a higher pitched voice from time to time. We'll hear that about Hillary Clinton. Um, and on the stage, I think, I think, frankly, a lot of what, what we're talking about might even be dictated by the moderator, Lester Holt, with the way he's going to cut off debate. Right. For instance, Matt Lauer, my NBC colleague, got a lot of pushback with the way he was trying to squeeze questions in on Hillary Clinton. Intentionally or not, it came off very unbecoming of Matt Lauer. I think Lester Holt has to be careful with that, but also how Hillary Clinton responds to that. If she comes off as assertive and forceful, I think the gender question will frankly fall to the wayside. But if there's a little bit of back and forth, we're going to see social media light up like like a switchboard.
0: Let's talk about fact-checking. For um, Coming up in the show, we're going to talk to Politica, Politifact.com about the work that they're going to do tonight and how they've been just following uh, politicians over the last several years, fact-checking. A lot of um, attention on Donald Trump, especially from the New York Times over the weekend about how he distorts, distorts, distorts. Uh, tonight, you mentioned Lester Holt being the moderator. Matt Lauer did a poor job at that uh, forum a few weeks ago, did not push back on Donald Trump when he said he, uh, you know, he did never supported the Iraq war. So Lester Hold is in that position now where oftentimes people are looking at how the moderator is going to do his job. Um, nevertheless, what Clinton and Trump will be saying.
1: We've gone from, a, from an age of debates where the moderator was kind of just someone who was there and kept it going to now there is as much talk as ever about who's going to moderate these events. Um, on the issue of fact-checking specifically, I I wonder... If I mean Lester Holt is an incredible professional, um, I I am sure that he has done his homework and will have the list of his facts in front of him and 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 common policy positions et cetera. Um, but in this presidential race, I would love to be able to say facts have really mattered. I would love to be able to say that as a reporter and as a journalist. But the fact is, to so many people and even voters I've spoken to, they've said, look, it's about my feelings. I know that Hillary's gone flip-flopped on, for instance, the TPP. They're like, I know that, but I just love Hillary. And then you'll hear people say, well, I know that Donald Trump maybe waffled a little bit on his immigration stuff, but I think Donald Trump's really going to make Connecticut and he's going to make America a greater place again. Those positions I just said are directly, in fly in the fa- directly flying in the face of what facts are. Uh, and and what has been said and so you know I, I think that the fact debate with this being the first one the fact element of this debate mm-hmm. if we see a back and forth then this first hour of the evening could really really have some fireworks
0: let's circle back to Connecticut before we break you know what's the one issue that you think Connecticut voters really want to hear about tonight
1: I think it's all about the economy I really think everything has to do with the economy which then I think puts an onus on the presidential candidates what on earth can a single presidential candidate do or a, or a a president do to change a trajectory to change the feelings of people in a state? When you talk to people around this state, they all feel squeezed. Uh and I know that there was good economic data out 2 weeks ago that showed that real wages, you know, not even adjusted for inflation are up $3,000. That's great news. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a lot of families in Connecticut, middle class, even between middle and upper-class families who say, yeah, you know what? I think I'm just cruising along just fine. Things are good. People feel squeezed. They want want better jobs. They want better wages. They feel like they're kind of backed into a corner. And I think that they want to hear from Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, what are they going to do to make your Naugatucks better, your Derby's better? How do you get a Waterbury back to what it was many years ago? How does a city like Bridgeport get back on its feet? Not to mention a city like Hartford. Mm -hmm. Everything I just said there... I don't know how that come. I don't know how a presidential a national policy changes that. But mark my words, getting money back in people's pocket, I think that's the biggest thing for Connecticut voters.
0: I want to thank Max Reese, political reporter for NBC Connecticut. He'll be traveling down to Long Island tonight to cover the first presidential debate between Democrat Hillary Clinton and Republican Donald Trump. It starts at 9 p.m. at Hofstra. NPR will have special coverage, but if you want to watch it, NBC Connecticut's the place. Max, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Lucy. After the break, we'll hear from PolitiFact.com and how its journalists plan on fact-checking tonight's presidential debate. This is where we live. this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. Can you watch tonight's presidential debate without scanning your iPhone or some other device to see what claims are true and what are lies or half-truths? Fact-checking websites have really exploded in recent years. PolitiFact.com was one of the first, a project of the Tampa Bay Times. It won a Pulitzer in 2009 for its work fact-checking the 2008 presidential campaign. Joining us now by phone is PolitiFact's creator and contributing editor, Bill Adair. Bill, welcome to where we live.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: So you created PolitiFact, a fact-checking website that um, analyzes statements made by politicians, not just on the federal level, and you rate them based on their level of accuracy. What will you and your team be doing tonight during tonight's debate?
2: So we will have uh, all hands on deck tonight. We've got 18 Fact-checkers working tonight, so uh, quite an operation. Uh, the the plan uh, looks like something General Eisenhower used to uh, to go into Normandy. It's quite elaborate, so I'm really impressed by the. The plan that our editors have put together Um, And our goal is to do As much real-time fact-checking As possible Uh, You were talking earlier about um, uh, Having your device with you Phone or iPad while you're watching the debate And we know that millions of viewers Will be doing that And one way to get instant fact-checking Is to follow PolitiFact On Twitter Uh, We will be, in effect, kind of live uh, Fact-checking As As the candidates say things that we have checked before, uh, which is pretty common, we will put out a link to our previous fact check and indicate how we rated it, whether it was true or false or even pants on fire.
0: (laughs) So run us through the fact checking process. And we were talking in the newsroom, you know, how do you fact check the fact checkers who are doing the fast checking?
2: So uh, the first part um, is, is a very impressive process. Uh, that we've developed over the nine years uh, since we started PolitiFact. Um, And, you know, a typical fact check takes hours to do, um, typically about one day, sometimes less, but sometimes more. And so uh, we will take the statement. We go to the person who said it. We ask them for backup materials. We then seek independent sources to try to determine if it's true. And then uh, we have three editors who determine the rating on our truth o uh, So, so, uh, you know, a typical fact check takes a while. Now, what we do on debate nights is we will listen for claims that we've checked before, and we will republish those with the with whatever the new statement is. Uh, and often that can be done very quickly. So the first thing you'll see on Twitter will be a link to our previous fact check, and we'll say we've you know rated that before. We gave it a false, um, and then we will throughout the night publish um, new fact checks initially on things that we've rated before, and then by the end of the night, probably in the 11 o'clock to 1 a.m. hours, we'll publish new fact checks on things that they said uh, that we're able to, to rate tonight.
0: I'm talking with Bill Adair, founder of PolitiFact, also professor of journalism and public policy at Duke University. You can go to PolitiFact.com tonight while you're watching the debate. You know, Bill, I wanted to ask, you know, who are the people that go to your website and and how much does fact-checking matter this election season?
2: Sure. So uh, the people who go to a fact-checking website tend to be people who are uh, politically active. They tend to be uh, uh, pretty highly educated um, often um you know from one or the other side of the political spectrum, so the um I think one of the goals I have, and this is more putting on my my hat as a professor and researcher at Duke, is to broaden the audience for fact checking by trying to create new things that put fact checks in front of people more quickly. That could be anything from uh, something on your web browser that might pop up fact checks when you see a political statement. Uh, It may be down the road, the ability to put a a pop-up fact check on a television screen so we would detect the statement and then pop up a a fact check that's been, been written about it uh and you know i think that's the that's the real opportunity for growth is to get the fact check closer to the political message so people don't have to go and and look it up. You know, to the question of sort of who checks us, well, everybody does. There's plenty of that. Um, There are uh, now uh, three major fact checkers in the United States, uh, PolitiFact, which has 18 state sites. So we have PolitiFact New York, PolitiFact Virginia, PolitiFact Arizona. So um, where we check statements made by local politicians uh, as well as state officials. And, uh, and then we also have pundit fact where we, check statements made by pundits and talk show hosts uh and then there's also factcheck.org which was uh, the the first major fact-checking site and the Washington Post fact-checker Glenn Kessler so um and then on a night like tonight there'll be lots of fact-checking the the New York Times and the Associated Press and and many other news organizations will get into the act too so there's plenty of different sources and you know people can decide uh which ones uh, they agree with And, you know, the most important thing, and this gets back to something your your previous guest said, um, uh, our our goal is to inform democracy. And we do that, I think, really well. This is a new form of journalism, and I'm very proud to have been uh, involved in getting it started. Um, But I I don't think it's a failure to say that uh, because one candidate has changed their position on an issue, uh, and that's been revealed by fact-checkers, uh, and people don't, don't stop voting for that candidate, I don't think that's a failure of fact-checking. Our goal is to pro- provide information. We do. In fact, the fact that we know that Donald Trump has so many falsehoods, such an extraordinary record for spreading falsehoods and misinformation, is because of this tremendous increase in fact-checking. So this year is not the post-fact year, the way that some talk about it, but it's really a year when Fact-checking has shown how important it is. There's been this tremendous increase in fact-checking, and so I I think this is a situation where people have a lot more information now thanks to the rise of fact-checking.
0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Alpethanchil. Have you ever wondered how the fact checkers do their job, and how Politifact.com will be fact checking tonight's debate? You can join the conversation eight six zero two seven five seven two six six, or you can tweet, or find us on Facebook at Where We Live. You know, Bill, I was, you know, you mentioned that fact checking. Because of the you know, the growth, we know often that politicians are, you know, are are distorting or maybe saying a lot of half truths. But how has this impacted how politicians, you know, make statements if they know there's all these fact checkers out there? Well that depends
2: on the I think it depends on the level of the politics and the personality of the politician. So we know that in many of our states, in the eighteen states where PolitiFact has fact checkers that uh, politicians often care deeply about the ratings they give, uh, about the, r- the ratings the fact-checkers give, and, and we know that uh, they will correct statements after they say them. And we also know they're very aware before a statement is made that they're going to be fact-checked. Uh, uh, Governor Christie, Governor Jeb Bush, uh, Governor uh, Rick Perry have all talked about being politifacted and said things like Bush did once, which was, all right, I'm going to be careful here because I'm going to be politifacted. So that's, I think that indicates these, you know, politicians care about this, um, many of them at least. And and I think that's a great thing. Um, facts are the building blocks of a political discourse. And so uh, it's great to hear that politicians care about what the fact checkers say. Um, now, some don't. Clearly, Donald Trump has ignored what fact checkers say. He's made statements repeatedly that are false. His claims about who founded ISIS, his claims about his own uh, um, opposition to the Iraq War—just uh, two of many, many falsehoods of the th- of the statements. Politifact has rated uh, more than half, and this we're talking about more than two hundred statements more than half of those have been rated false or pants on fire. So Donald Trump is really the exception. Um, There hasn't been a major political figure in our history that has uh, just said so many blatant falsehoods and said them repeatedly. Um, And I think the fact checkers have done a great job at calling him out on that. Um, You know, after that, it's up to the voters. Um, The voters have to decide. whether that's important to them, and uh, and if they do, talk to him, call him out, um, and you know can decide with their votes.
0: That goes back to you know one of my first questions, Bill. Again, if if um, you're able to show that Donald Trump as a candidate is distorting uh, half of the time, um, he's still neck and neck with his opponent. I mean, it's, that's why I'm wondering: Do people really care about the facts? Well,
2: I think it's always been the case that the most partisan people are um, willing to put uh, facts uh, aside. So, you know, if you take in the case of a a Clinton supporter, um, your previous guest mentioned uh, Secretary Clinton's flip flop on the TPP. So that's very true. She did change her position on that. Well, to a lot of voters, they don't. You know, that isn't a big issue for them. Okay, so she changed her position on that. Um, maybe it was for political reasons, but that's not a key thing for them. And so I think that phenomenon of saying, well, you know, my candidate uh, uh, said uh, this and it was wrong, but I still believe in in him or her, I, That that's not a new phenomenon. And, you know, there was a uh, both the New York Times and the Washington Post have done uh, sort of how many falsehoods did did Trump spew in the last week stories in the past two days. And the Washington Post story today, they interviewed a Trump supporter uh, who essentially said, well, you know, um, I don't really care uh, that he's getting so many things wrong because he's going to blow up the system. Uh, And so, you know, that's that's that voters right to decide uh to ignore all of that many other voters are very troubled by donald trump's many many falsehoods so you know it it's um it's up to the voters uh but i think the uh, i i've been disappointed to see people blame fact checking um fact checking is working great and now it's up to democracy <laughs>
0: I guess we'll have to leave it there. This has been an interesting conversation, Bill. I appreciate your time. Also, creator and contributing editor of politifact.com, he's Professor of Journalism and Public Policy at Duke University. And Politifact's deputy editor, Katie Sanders, will be in Connecticut to give a talk at Central Connecticut State University October 3rd ahead of National News Engagement Day. Uh, Bill Adair, thank you again so much for coming on. We're really looking forward uh, to seeing what your 18 fact checkers, the job they do tonight at politifact.com.
2: You bet. people will turn out to hear uh, Katie. She's uh, she's great. She's, she's got a, a lot to talk about.
0: And when you, real quick before you go, the 18 fact checkers, people who've been doing this for some time?
2: Uh, yes. Um, we have uh, some real veterans. We also have some college students who are pitching in too. So we've got a broad group tonight.
0: All right. Bill Adair again, uh, creator and contributing editor of politifact.com, professor of journalism and public policy at Duke University. Bill, thanks again for your time today.
2: You bet. Happy to do it.
0: Coming up after the break, we're going to start a new series here about the immigrants who choose Connecticut as their home. We're going to hear from an uh, author from Chile uh, named Ricardo Henriquez. And we want to thank him for speaking to us for our first se- part of our series, again, about the immigrants who come to Connecticut and uh, why they chose Connecticut as their home. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nolpathanchel. Each year, thousands of immigrants move to Connecticut. They have many different backgrounds, from white-collar and blue-collar workers to artists and students. Many start families, which boosts the state population, a population that's shrinking and getting older. We wanted to know more about the immigrants living in our state, so we're starting an occasional series to share their stories. Journalist and fiction writer Ricardo Enriquez sold everything he had before moving to Connecticut in 2001. Now he's a senior manager at United Way in Hartford, and his first novel, The Catcher's Trap, hits bookstores this November. He joins us to talk about his novel and his journey here from a small town in the Atacama Desert. Ricardo, welcome to where we live.
3: Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: So you're Chilean. Tell us about your hometown.
3: Uh, Yeah, I'm from Chile. I grew up in a really small town in the north of the country called Tocopilla, which is in the coast surrounded by giant uh, mountains. It's ocean in this side and one side and the mountains in the other. It's very close (laughs) to really small, and it's mostly mining and fishing. And my whole family is from there, from generations back. And yeah, I grew up there. Really small place. Everybody knows everybody, and my mother's family is probably half of the population.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, when we're in the United States, you know, South America is a very big place. Um, What was it like to live and grow up in Chile?
3: Well, I was born and raised in a really dark time in my country. I was born uh, during dictatorship, and the dictator was Pinochet, and he was in power until I was 18 years old. So I grew up, I was born and raised in in a time when things were really difficult, when violations to human rights was a a daily thing. But you know, like, you don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. I didn't grow up in democracy. I didn't know what democracy looks like. We were told that what we had was a democracy. Like, nobody talked about dictatorship during uh, that time. And certainly there was so much fear that my parents wouldn't dare to talk about it. But there's things that you pick up, like the fear in people, the whispers at night when, like, people want to talk about things that they are afraid of talking. So it's a weird time. You grow up and you're happy because your parents try to make you as happy as you can. But you see things that, like, somehow you know that should not be happening. And that, like, common sense or, like, I don't know, your own spirit tells you that should not be happening. So... It was weird. It was a small town. We were far from the capital and far from like the big, big things that were happening, like protests on the streets and riots and all those things. But we also were surrounded by military and police that could kill us at any moment.
0: Under Pinochet's regime, hundreds, if not thousands, of people were killed. Anyone. Anyone in your family that was, was
3: murdered? No, nobody in my family directly. My my father's only brother had to uh, flee the country. He moved to Sweden because everybody that belonged to the Socialist Party was getting killed. And because we were a small town, the chief of police gave him a pass and said, you have three hours to get your family and leave. He, My family, I just thought, have never shared mm-hmm. how he got to Sweden, but he got there with his family, and they were safe. My mother used to be a babysitter for the mayor's kids, and he got killed with a firing squad, and that was always something really close and and um, and painful for my family because his kids called my mother mom up, up until today, so... Mm-hmm.
0: It's hard uh, living under that kind of regime to feel comfortable expressing yourself. But eventually you became a writer.
3: Yeah. I always had a really active imagination. So my grandmother and I would walk to school every morning and I would tell her stories since I was little. Since before I can remember, I would tell her like stories that I made up about things that I said that happened. But she said that they were like so complex and so full of like characters and stories that she led me and she never said like that's a lie because she thought it was cute that I was making up these stories and as soon as I could write this is so funny uh, I was obsessed with murder she wrote and (laughs) obsessed when I was little and the first little story the first short story I wrote when I was like seven years old was a murder she wrote chapter like episode actually it was one page long I always loved writing it was something that like I I liked.
0: I remember that show. My mother would watch that religiously, (laughs) but I didn't have an affinity to it as you did.
3: We had two TV channels, the Catholic TV channel and the government TV channel. We had really restricted television that we received. And murder she wrote was one of those few <laughs> uh, uh t v shows that actually was allowed in the country
0: do you still have that one page uh, i don't episode?
3: i don't i i wouldn't be surprised if my mother has it somewhere <laughs> yeah.
0: so eventually you went from um you know being creative and and loving writing to as you got older thinking about journalism but again, under the Pinochet regime, a dangerous career
3: yeah, it was well. When I decided to go to journalism, I wanted to be a writer. That's what I wanted to be. But my parents said that writers don't make money, and they were I was the first person in my family to go to college, and they were not going to make sacrifices for a career that was not going to give me any income. They were like, we are poor, we want you to make money. And what is surprising is that, like, journalism schools were all closed during the Pinochet regime. People were not allowed to study journalism. Journalists were selected and put on on the few media that we had. Mm -hmm. I graduated from high school. Uh, Pinochet was leaving the regime in two years, and the journalism schools opened. So I was the first wave of journalists that graduated when we returned to democracy. My Mm -hmm. parents were terrified, but it was a compromise.
0: So during this time, you also came out as a gay man.
3: Yeah, and I think that I came up, I came out like really early on, um, and it was not, um, yeah, it was not great. It was not the, it was a really, it is still a really conservative country. Very Catholic. Very Catholic. I never met someone that wasn't Catholic in my life ever. (laughs) Uh <laughs> how
0: did you how did you get the courage to come out then as gay?
3: I think that there was not other option. At some point I hated myself so much, so much, because of who I was and what I was doing to my family. That was the way that I saw it. Because my family for years was not okay with it. Um that I made a decision. I said I either kill myself or I just decide who I like accept who I am and Thank God I I decided the second one. I was like, I don't care. Whatever comes, comes. And I am out. And this is who I am. And I actually didn't speak to my family for a long, long time.
0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Alpithanchel. We're speaking to Chilean immigrant Ricardo Enriquez. Uh, He lives in Connecticut now. And I wanted to ask, what made you leave Chile?
3: I was actually a really successful journalist. I had a really great career. I was working at the equivalent of the White House, and I was young, and I was really proud of the work that I was doing, but I was in constant threat of losing my job because I was gay, because I was out, and I was openly gay. My boss, my direct boss, he was a great guy, and he really loved me, but he was always telling me uh, the leadership of the newspaper Are not happy with you being out, and you may get fired any time because of that. And at some point, I said I cannot live like that anymore. Like this is not the country for me. At the time, it seems like things were never going to change. Like the country has evolved a little, but like at the time, it seems like it was never going to happen. So I sold everything I own and I moved to the U.S. Which, thanks to Hollywood, I thought it was like the place to be if you were gay.
0: (laughs) And what year was this?
3: 2001.
0: 2001. So, very different climate here in the United States for gays and lesbians.
3: Yes. And when I came, though, I was surprised that it wasn't as open as I thought it was. I mean, I I moved to Connecticut and we're really close to New York. Uh, it is quite open. But in the early two thousand, it wasn't like as gay-friendly as I thought it was going to be. Uh, but it was a world of a difference between, like, Chile and here. So I moved here was the right move.
0: So walk us through. So you make this decision to leave the country of your birth, Mm -hmm. uh, the culture that you've known all your life. Um, We hear so often about the different uh, reasons that people leave other uh, countries, whether uh, fleeing persecution or just looking for new opportunities. How did you, you mention that you picked Connecticut near New York, but you sold everything. So how did you, I guess, find a place here? Where did you, uh, how did you find a place to live and, and what town did you uh, arrive?
3: Well, I, I have some, fr- I had some friends. There's a Chilean family who lives in Camden, actually, who, my my initial thought was, I come here, I get settled a little bit in, in Connecticut, and then I moved to New York, but that never happened, obviously. I came here, and this family, Urrutia is their last name, uh, they found me a place to live. Uh, I rented a room from, from someone, and I lived there for, they helped me out, like, to get my food in here, and then I stayed in Connecticut. <laughs>
0: And that's the the immigrant story, right? You find a place um, that you might have connections, and that's where you end yeah. up, and you decide to to this becomes your your new place. Yeah,
3: and it feels like home. Like after a while, it, it is amazing how how places become home. How like something that at, at the beginning felt so foreign and so different to me, eventually a lot faster than I thought it would. It felt like home and I felt like part of it and like even a little bit defensive of it when I would hear like people, especially people in my country, talking against the United States or saying things that were not kind. And I would say always governments are not the people who live under the country. Like we cannot judge an entire country based on what government decisions are made.
0: Mm. And... again, when we talk about immigration, for people um, unfamiliar with the system, um, it's, it can be complicated. So you came oh, here on a visa and you now have a green card?
3: I do. And I don't think that I have anything new to add to the to what we already know. It's difficult. It's expensive. It's complicated. People are not really nice to you <laughs> through the process. And it's quite scary because your new life, like, the process is so long that you already have a life by the time that you finish with the process and ended up with, like, your your final green card that they cannot take away it anymore. Okay, even though they can always take it away. But, yeah, like, <laughs> <laughs> by the time that, like, you get to that point, it has been a while, like, years, and you have a family, you have a life, and so it is scary. I don't think that, like, my story is any different from anybody mm-hmm. that has had to navigate
0: And just because you have a green card, it doesn't mean you can just get your citizenship like that.
3: Oh, no, no, no. You have to get your citizenship. I think you have to be here like three or five years. I have not done it. I still have a green card. It is really expensive. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't have that money just Mm -hmm. sitting around to do it.
0: Let me ask you, when people who are unfamiliar with South America may not know anything about Chile, when they encounter you, do they just assume that you came here legally?
3: Yeah. You know, like when I have friends from like all political uh, spectrum, and some of them are quite not. They have a a, a huge issue with undocumented immigrants, and they always said like, "It's not you're not part of them. You have a green card, like you are different." And I always tell them when like someone decide to discriminate against me, when someone de- decide that they want to be violent against me because they hear me speak and they realize that I'm not from here, they don't ask me for my green card. Nobody said like do you have a green card? I'm going to decide if I treat you differently from other people. Like, you don't, ha- you don't get this question. The assumption is you have, and I always said it's not an accent, it's the wrong un- accent. You have the wrong accent and you are, uh, there's an assumption that, like, you are uh, undocumented. And, yeah, that's a problem.
0: Do you feel that you have um, faced a lot of discrimination since you've come to the yeah. United States?
3: Yeah. There's, like, There's small things and there's are bigger thing. There's small things like when you go to buy a house with your husband, who happens to be a white male, um, the realtor only speaks to him until you tell him that you are actually paying for half of it. Um, There's small things like that and other, like, small things that, like, just happen because of, like, my accent or other, like... Other little things, and then there's big things from people simply, like, treating you badly or not wanting to, like, deal with you because of who you are. Like, I work as a waiter for a long time, and there were times when people asked me if there was an American waiter to wait on them.
0: In a place as open as Connecticut, you still encounter that?
3: All the time, yeah. And there's, like, you know, the small things. It's not like those people would discriminate me on purpose like how many times i have been asked if i've because i'm doing something if that's my job because it's a service thing that i'm doing like i'm gardening in my house and someone walked to me and said like are you taking new clients i i i know it sounds funny it happens to me so often or i'm walking my dog and people ask me if i can like i have space for other dogs and like i always tell my friends like Until you get, like, my friends that don't get discriminated, uh, because they're white, uh, I said, like, until you get asked at least once a month if you are the help, like, you don't get it. And there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with any of those jobs. It's just the assumption that bothers.
0: Earlier, we talked about, um, you know, your hesitancy to come out as gay when you were living in Chile. Yeah. Uh, You came to the U.S. and you found it was more open, but not as open as, you know, Hollywood makes it appear. Now, in 2016, you've lived here now for almost, what, 15 years? 15 years. Um, You know, what is life like for you?
3: It's great. I have a great life. I have a husband who I loved. And a dog that I love, and I was asked to say it in that order. Uh, and I was able to go back to college, get a degree in something I love. Uh, I have a job that I really enjoy, and I have time to do things that I that I like: writing, running. I own a house. I, I I'm really fortunate and privileged.
0: So you went from uh, journalism to the nonprofit world, but again, uh, your love was writing. So tell us about your novel coming out.
3: Sure. Um, So I always like to to write. Um, I took a long break when I moved to the U.S. because it took me a while to actually get settled and going through school and all of that. And at the beginning, I was really, really poor. I didn't have a... laptop. So (laughs) I couldn't write it anyway. But finally, a couple of years ago, the idea of writing a novel was always there. And I finally got the inspiration that I needed. I went through a really dark time in my life. I had a really deep depression. I wanted to turn that into something positive. So I got the idea of writing this novel that was actually a fantasy novel because I'm a giant nerd and I wanted to write about something that I actually like. And I wrote it, and I put it together, and it's now coming out.
0: It's called The Catcher's Trap? Yes. And you based it, again, on your experience uh, dealing with depression. So tell us a little bit about the storyline.
3: Well, The Catcher's Trap is the story of this young Latino man. His name is Andres, and he has struggled his whole life with depression and anxiety, and he's at a point in his life where it is crippling, where, like, he doesn't see a way out, and one night, he decided to do something different. He decided to go to a bar and try to have fun because he thinks that it's his fault that he feels this way. And that doesn't work out too well for him. Uh, he meets a bunch of, like, strangers. He goes with them to a party. And before he knows it, the party is a trap. And he ended up in an alternate universe as a, as a slave working the fields Uh, with a bunch of other human slaves that have been there for generations. And it's his his story of transformation um, from overcoming his own demons and getting the courage to fight the demons that are enslaving people. And I heard like two days ago from a critic that is a little bit more violent than people would think, but it has slaves in it. I didn't want to sugarcoat it.
0: It's a, a fantasy novel, um, but it's something that deals with the topic that you know many of us in our lifetime will experience. Um, yeah. You know, lately there is more attention on being open and not having stigma surrounding depression. Uh, who do you hope will read your book, *The Catcher's Trap*?
3: I have learned through, like, talking, being part of like the fantasy and horror. Uh, circles that a lot of people in those groups have struggled with depression and discrimination. And, like, they were the nerds. They were, like, most of us were the losers in high school. We were not the popular kids. And I'm not saying that some of the popular kids don't like these genres, but, like, Mm -hmm. most of us were not, like, uh, the most popular kids. So depression and discrimination are really part of who we were or who we are. And I hope that when people read this fun novel that, like, put this on a... On a fun way, like can identify with the feelings that it creates, and like the the struggle and and being able to overcome it and 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 get to the other side.
0: And what advice do you have for uh, people who are listening, who are aspiring authors?
3: I I have two two advices. One, write, write every day. Write, put us an hour aside every day and just write, write. Two sentences, write an entire page. Whatever happens that day is better than not writing at all. And that's the number one thing that I hear from authors. I don't have the time to write. And actually, you do. Set up an hour aside and do it and just sit yourself. And if you write one word, it is completely fine. And the second is that the publishing industry has changed so much. There's so many options now that you don't need to wait just for a traditional publisher to, like, choose you among the thousands that they get to get your stuff published. I'm publishing through Inkshares, which is a crowdfunding platform that specializes in books, and they are a great alternative for people that just don't want to deal with, like, the traditional uh, the traditional publisher that think that, like, they have a good product and they are willing to do the like, work from it.
0: Fiction writer Ricardo Enriquez. He's a Chilean immigrant who moved to Connecticut back in 2001. Now he's a senior manager at United Way in Hartford. And his first novel, The Catcher's Trap, hits bookstores this November. We'll have information on our website, wmpr.org slash live. Thank you so much, Ricardo.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. WMPR's executive producer is Katie Tolarski. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.